0: Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Andrew Gold, who I had on this podcast earlier this year, asked me if I wanted to hop on with him and discuss the Israeli-Hamas war. And I said, sure. We talk all about the war in Israel and Gaza. As you'll hear, Andrew and I agree that there is simply no moral equivalence between Hamas and Israel. And as you'll hear, I'm also quite sympathetic to the policies that Israel has had to take in order to protect itself from terrorism. I plan to have many more conversations about this topic, and I really want to get someone on this podcast that strongly disagrees with me so I don't create an echo chamber for myself or for you guys. And one note about this episode, I think at some point I referred to the UN partition of Israel and Palestine and mistakenly said it was in 1948. If so, I meant to say 1947, so forgive me in advance for that. Okay, so with that said, please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Gold. Coleman Hughes, how might you
1: summarise the current...
0: Israel-Palestine
1: conflict in very simple terms for those who haven't been following the news or or understanding it or just trying to get in there because it's so hard isn't it you know when there's a whole news thing and you've missed the beginning and you don't know what's going on.
0: Yeah so basically what happened is uh, on October 7th Hamas which is a a terrorist group that controls the Gaza Strip which is uh, just a tiny section of of Israel, southwest Israel. Normally there's you know this is one of the most secure borders in the world. You're talking about border between Gaza and the rest of Israel is is similar to the border between North Korea and South Korea it's just it's thought to be an impenetrable fortress and what happened is is that Hamas was able to penetrate it in just many, many different places uh, in many different ways. And they had what is, from their point of view, the most successful attack on the state of Israel in the history of the conflict, actually, in the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict, probably. And so from one perspective, this is being called the the 9-11 for Israel because it was just a, a massive shock that... They were able to accomplish this in the first place, just as it was a massive shock that hijackers were able to bring down the World Trade Center uh, just from a security standpoint. And then from a a death toll and and just barbarism of behavior, the way Hamas, you know, what Hamas did was not just target IDF soldiers. They went into some of the kibbutzes, the idyllic little towns that uh, communes that civilians live in. Close to the Gaza border, some of which I I visited, and just absolutely slaughtered men, women, and children indiscriminately. And it's really worth watching some of the videos that Hamas took. I mean, Hamas took celebratory videos of what it was doing to civilians. And, you know, I'm talking about uh, disfigured bodies mutilated bodies, raped bodies, women with bleeding crotches being paraded around a group of Hamas fighters that are cheering, hacking off the heads of nearly dead soldiers with the blunt instruments. Just, you know, scenes that you would expect out of a history book about Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun, just like absolute 13th century barbarism. And this went on for many many hours and the death toll the, the recent death toll it's looking like somewhere around 800 people were killed 260 of those people were at a music festival just outside the gaza border they were dancing at like 6 a.m and then hamas came and just opened fired into a crowd of people dancing and just went one by one blockaded them as they try to exit in their cars and just you know one after another just just uh execution style killed men, women, indiscriminately. So that's what happened. And similar to how the United States reacted to 9-11, which is to say we all united around the complete unacceptability of what happened and around the desire to absolutely destroy the terrorist group that did this and anyone that helped them do it. That is what Israel is now feeling and doing. So they, Israel is very likely going to do everything in their power to destroy Hamas fully. That is to kill or capture every single important member of Hamas that is lurking in the Gaza Strip and to probably to occupy Gaza militarily and uh, put in place some kind of regime that is more acceptable uh, in this in the same way that we did or tried to do in Afghanistan and Iraq. So that would be my uh, my nutshell summary of what happened this past weekend.
1: It's interesting what you what you mentioned, of course, they filmed this stuff and they wanted to put it out as much as possible. And I guess this is quite an interesting One, I think it's maybe fairly unique in in terrorism because there is in the background a PR war going on the whole time where both sides, if we can call them sides, which might be Israel and Hamas, or maybe Israel and Palestine, are trying to elicit sympathy from the world, from the UN and from all sorts of people. And at the same time, I suppose the very crux of terrorism The whole point is to spread fear and terror, which is why at first I was surprised they were uploading these videos at all, because the whole point is we're the victims here. But it's the object of terrorism, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. It does reveal something strange about Hamas's mindset, because if they were more rational, you would expect them not to advertise their rape of women, for example. You would expect them not to advertise. I've heard, I haven't seen videos of this yet, but there has been one report that there were babies which were beheaded. That's a that's actually a hard sentence for me to even get out without becoming emotional. But this is not something that you do in order to win the sympathy of the world. This is the face of evil, right? And so you have to imagine what kind of people not only do this, but then broadcast it knowing that the world is going to look upon what they're doing aghast, you know, in horror. It's uh it, it that's a very strange part of it, but the other part of it is Hamas does try to win a PR war, and one way that they do this is, you know, what's going to happen is that Israel is going to bomb the absolute daylights out of Gaza. They are going to seek military targets, they're going to try to hit Hamas where they are. But the problem is that Gaza has some 2 million people. In a just a tiny landmass. It is one of the most crowded places in the world. It is it's just it's like crowded slums on top of crowded slums. And Hamas intentionally hides and camps out, not just anywhere, but in the basement of hospitals or the basement of schools, precisely in the places where if you try to bomb them, you're going to kill the most innocent kinds of civilians, you're going to kill children, you're going to kill sick people in a hospital. And Hamas does this on purpose. They do this on purpose because they know that Israel is going to kill those children, right? They're going to kill those children as collateral damage, just as America would if we, if we were trying to root out the Taliban or Al Qaeda, just as we did. Now they're going to be able to show those the dead bodies of those children and say, well, look, Israel is is no better than us. Uh, In fact, they're worse. And perhaps the death toll is even higher. Right. So they do try to win that PR war. But it's it's Mm. just it's worth I think that actually works to a disturbing degree on people because a lot of people aren't able to see that there is a huge moral difference between these two sides. Right. There is the IDF would never consider using israeli civilians as human shields for multiple reasons one because it's just totally unethical and legally according to international law it is a war crime you know the idf would never camp out intentionally in a kibbutz or next to an israeli school they would try to put as much separation between their military outposts and and civilians and secondly it just wouldn't even work because for hamas Killing an IDF soldier is just as good as killing an Israeli civilian. right? Killing Israeli civilians is the point. It's not something Hamas seeks to avoid. It's great for them. It, this is what they celebrate. They celebrate the killing of non-combatants. So the whole logic of human shields as a deterrent wouldn't even work. And that tells you a lot about the goals of each
1: side that bit about the babies is being disputed quite heavily on Twitter. And that's something I think we can maybe talk about later is the way that people dispute things. It's really interesting where, whether it's a lack of empathy or just this, like, I don't know, uh, bizarre level of pedantry that people have where it turns out that it may have been that some of the babies were not beheaded and some were or something like that Or there's one news source in Turkey coming out and saying it didn't happen. Reminds me a little bit of how some people are with regards to the Holocaust It's they'll say at the same time it didn't happen and that it did happen and it's good that it happened and it's like well which one? So that's being said about the babies thing right now uh, oh, oh that would never happen And there's, but they know that stuff like that is going on and they think they have the moral high ground just by winning a war of, of pedant about the exact precise things that happened. I had a look back at our last meeting uh, almost a year ago, and we talked about Israel as well. And again, you used that comparison to 9-11. Do you think that's a really important symbol in this or a comparison in this because from the outside, when you look at this, you're seeing what seems to be this, the underdog in Palestine and then this brutal, big Israel linked to America and imperialism and all these things. And is that a way for you to help fellow Americans to understand, you know, how, how to put themselves in the place of Israel?
0: Yeah, I think it is. I think it captures a lot about the psychology of the moment. First, it captures this question of why do they do this? Right. This was a huge question in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Why did they do this? And it's, you know, it's a debate we had for like 15 years in this country. Is it that they hate U.S. foreign policy? They hated our meddling in the Middle East. They hated, uh, you know, the Gulf War and uh, the, the proxy wars with the Soviet Union. In other words, were they like Noam Chomsky with AK-47s and and more violent intentions? Or is it something deeper? Are they, do they have an a radical extremist religious ideology, which says that we are infidels uh, and want to bring about a caliphate, a Muslim caliphate, and wage jihad or holy war on men, women, and children. And in that context, in that extremist interpretation of Islam, if you kill someone fighting jihad, they just go to heaven, right? Like they, that none of that matters. If you die fighting jihad, they go to heaven. There's no logical reason to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. And so what looks like terrorism from the secular point of view just looks like freedom fighting from their point of view. So we had this big debate about why are they doing this to us? I think Israel or the world is having that debate about Israel right now. Is this about the fact that Palestinians in the West Bank are living under occupation and military checkpoints and humiliation, and they can't vote, but they are subject to Israeli policy, they're disenfranchised, they're oppressed. Is this just Hamas responding to that reality? Is this Hamas responding to uh, the fact that Israeli settlements in the West Bank continue to expand on occupied territory, which are uh, largely considered to be illegal settlement expansions by the rest of the world? Or is it something deeper? Is it that Hamas, just in principle, cannot and never will accept any Jewish state on land that they believe to be theirs, and that any permutation of Jewish state uh, of a Jewish state there will be the the never ending subject of their violence and indiscriminate violence and, and hatred as a result of their ideology. So this is a debate that the world is having. You know, I find myself more in both cases, more on the side of the latter. I think that if you listen to what Hamas says when it explains itself, it's quite clear. I mean, it, it will list all of these more rational grievances as well. But in its charter, it's just quite clear that it wants to exterminate the Jews. And that motive makes more sense of its behavior. And I want to flag, you know, if the beheading baby stories turns out not to be true, I will, I'll concede that for sure, because this is an, I'm not sure when this will come out, but this is an evolving story right now.
1: But it makes more sense. But there's been enough, there've been enough mad, horrible things that we 100% know. Did exactly.
0: Happen. I mean, there are literally videos of them cheering as they parade around Female bodies, which are so disfigured that you would only see that arrangement of a body in a horror film, right? It's unspeakable. So when you try to understand, uh, how is it that a group of people could behave this way? It makes Hamas makes much more sense when you realize their goal is the total destruction of the Jewish people in Palestine, in the area that that we call Palestine or Israel. That's the goal. All of the more terrestrial grievances that they have, the kind of grievances that you that that I'm even sympathetic to. I don't. I think settlement expansion in the West Bank is a terrible idea and is immoral. I have plenty of sympathy for the Palestinians living in the West Bank, living in Gaza in terrible conditions. Though the blame for that is uh, there's much blame for that to go around, including Hamas and uh, Palestinian Authority and so forth. But you can't make sense of this kind of behavior absent this deeper motive. right? This What we're seeing from Hamas, that's not how militant groups behave when they want to live, when they want a nation. They just want a nation and they want to live side by side with their fellow nation. They don't parade around the bodies of mutilated women. Um, this is not typical behavior from uh, a nationalist, a nation-seeking militant group. This is the behavior of a group that is fine with genocide and, and in fact, pursues it and would pursue it if they had the power to. Now, on the flip side, we know what Israel would do if they had the power to do it, because Israel could kill every last person in the Gaza Strip tomorrow, right? If Netanyahu and, and the IDF just woke up with genocidal intent for some reason, they have the power to execute a genocide in the Gaza Strip, and they don't. I'm sure for many different reasons they don't. Humanitarian reasons and and also just all kinds of reasons. But Hamas is showing us what they would do to Israel if they could. If they could, they would do what they did in those border towns to those men, women, and children across all of Israel. That's the goal, right? That's not the means to some other more rational end. That is the end in itself. My my understanding is that the end goes further than that, that the end
1: is after Israel, the idea is just the world. I mean, obviously, that's not going to happen with Hamas, but that is their intention. I suppose what what you're describing is that ideological battle between Israel and, and Hamas, but it is different to Israel versus Palestine in, in, in a different sense. So Palestine itself could argue, just to play devil's advocate here, we're being squashed into what a lot of people are calling an open-air prison. A lot of people are calling it a system of apartheid. I think that's insulting to the memory of a lot of South Africans, the apartheid. But I understand why people say that. And that if you push people to their limits, they might... you know, It's, it's hu- humanity, it's human to then turn in desperation to elect an extremist uh, group. They maybe regret it right now, but that's different, isn't it? I suppose Israel versus Palestine and Israel versus Hamas.
0: Yeah. I mean, Hamas is the worst of of what Palestinians have to offer. There are a lot of, there are a lot of Palestinians that are not nearly as extreme as Hamas and so forth. So that is a good distinction to make. I think, yeah, I should address some of these arguments here. So first off the apartheid argument, Uh, this is the argument that people increasingly have made about the West Bank in particular. Palestinians in the West Bank, you know, throughout most of the West Bank, there are military checkpoints. They are, you know, they live at the mercy and under the boot of the IDF, right? If the IDF wants to come into your house because they think there is a terrorist there or someone who, who knows about terrorism there, they can just kick down the door. And this, presumably there are some IDF soldiers that take up this task, which with as much deference and grace as possible, and there are other IDF soldiers who abuse their power, right? So you get horror stories and stories of daily humiliations and and so forth. And this is, you know, frankly, this is what a military occupation is. This is what. Almost all military occupations have been. But the problem is it's gotten more and more tough. It's gotten it's gotten more and more brutal on the Palestinians as the occupation has gone on, which has gone on since not around 1967. So not only is this the longest military occupation in, you know, really the, the history of the past hundred years of, of global history, it's gotten worse and worse over time on the Palestinians to the point where people are now drawing a parallel to Uh, South African uh, apartheid or apartheid in general. Now, I think superficially that makes sense because Jews have one set of rights and Palestinians in the West Bank have another set of rights. On a deeper level, I don't think it's the most useful analogy through which to view the situation for a few reasons. If we're going to ask what does apartheid mean, the word comes from the concept of separation, but it's an explicit reference to South African apartheid. You could also call Jim Crow a version of apartheid as well. For me, the hallmark of apartheid is a kind of obsession with racial difference and racial separation. So for example, in both South Africa and the Jim Crow South, there were laws against miscegenation, which is reproducing, having sex and reproducing with someone of, of the other race. In South African apartheid, they would run a pencil through your hair. And if it was thin enough for the pencil to go through, then you would legally be considered uh, either white or colored. But if it were too nappy for it to go through, you would legally be considered uh, black. So that kind of obsession with racial difference and obsession with the races not intermixing or having sex or marrying, that's really, the, to me, the center of the bullseye of what we mean when we say apartheid. Now, if you look at the situation with Israel and Palestine, that's just not really what they're concerned about, right? That's not the motive for the separation. That's not the motive for you know the laws that treat Palestinians in the West Bank differently. And so to me, It fails to capture something central or it misses something central about the the definition of apartheid, to call it that. And then it's also worth saying, you know, something like 20 percent of Israeli citizens are Arab. And there are, you know, Arab members of Knesset. There are Arab Supreme Court justices. They are full citizens is not to say they face no discrimination, but, you know, mainland Israel is not an apartheid society and nobody even alleges that it's only in the occupied territory. So to me, the notion of apartheid fails to capture something central about the situation. And then finally, and I think this is the most important point, if you're going to call it apartheid, then you're suggesting the solution is just to get rid of apartheid, right? That's the implication. So let's actually walk through what happens. If Israel just gets rid of quote unquote apartheid in the West Bank. If calling it apartheid means anything, it means we should just get rid of those apartheid laws. Okay, so or, or the apartheid system. So if Israel just pulls out of the West Bank, they just they, they pull everyone out of the West Bank, what happens? What is likely to happen? What is likely to happen is that Hamas is likely to take over or something analogously awful is likely to fill the void. And then Attack Israel in precisely the same way that Israel was attacked on October 7th, but from a much larger and more strategic landmass, a much more difficult to defend uh, position. Israel has struggled enough to defend its position, its position vis a vis the Gaza Strip, which is tiny, tiny enough that you can build a wall around the entire border. The West Bank is gigantic. Uh, So what happens is that Israel gets attacked. Men, women, and children just get slaughtered indiscriminately. And now Israel is fighting a, a war with militants in the West Bank, killing Palestinians, killing Palestinian men, women, and children as well as a byproduct of, of uh, taking military targets. And now you're in a in a full you're in a full war. Now, if if that is actually your suggestion, then I suppose you have a consistent position if you, if you're calling it apartheid. My problem is that I think that occupation is hell, but war is a much deeper hell. And I can't in good conscience in good conscience, advocate a strategy that is very likely to lead to uh, a bloody war. So every option here is bad. And I think the moral attraction of a word like apartheid, I get why people are tempted by it, but it suggests that the solution is as simple as ending apartheid. When in my view... Every option here is very terrible.
1: Yeah, I think so as well. And just for people listening, for anyone who is confused, because it's so confusing if you're not already familiar with it. Because even just the name, the West Bank, it makes you think it's on the west of Israel. It's not; is on the east, and it, it's where there, there is still an occupying presence of Israel. Uh, and Gaza is on the west, much smaller, as Coleman points out, uh, and Israel doesn't isn't occupying currently. And that's where Hamas have grown, and where a lot of a lot of this is happening right now.
0: By the way, I, I should point out one more thing before you ask your question. The Israel used to occupy the Gaza Strip. Israel chose to unilaterally withdraw, meaning to withdraw with no promise of... Peace. Uh, There's long been a strategy of land for peace. In other words, Israel occupies some land as a result of a war and it will give that land back in exchange for a peace treaty. This is how Israel got peace with Egypt after the 1973 war. One rationale for holding on places to the Gaza Strip and the West Bank is that this is leverage in any negotiation. We can give this back in exchange for peace. In 2005, a controversial decision was made to give back the Gaza Strip without getting peace in return. This, in many ways, is what people want Israel to do with the West Bank. So one way of looking at the situation is how well did this strategy work with Gaza? Israel pulled out of Gaza. Hamas won an election, which was the last election there. Um, Hamas took over. Hamas treats its own people terribly. All of the resources they get, rather than build up infrastructure and make life better for people in the Gaza Strip, they channel it into making war against Israel. Any Palestinian in Gaza that openly criticizes Hamas will get snuffed out very quickly. And now, as a result of the fact that it's not occupied, they were able to pull off an attack like this. If you were an Israeli, a tiny country, whereas my, my friend Noam Dorman says history is still in color there. History is sort of in black and white for Americans. But you're living in a situation where, you know, you really feel that the next war, you could be a casualty, right? You don't have that sense of security that we have in America and in most places in Western Europe. You know, what lesson do you draw from the pullout from Gaza? Do you, could you really possibly draw the lesson that we ought to pull out from the West Bank? that that would be better for either side not at all clear to me so again this is a situation where there there are no obvious solutions and to advocate what would seem like the ob- obvious solutions which is just get rid of the checkpoints just treat everyone the same you may be ushering in a situation of such bloodshed that i you know i don't know if i'd be able to sleep at night having advocated for such a position and then watching what unfolds? I think uh, one of the issues I've got with some of
1: the language going back to apartheid. I think at the moment, regarding that PR war we talked about, race and identity is one of the the foremost subjects that can win an argument and win sympathy right now and apartheid gives the impression that israel this modern white looking country is racist and so i'm I'm, I'm glad you clarified that i think that's the issue i have with it i've also heard a lot of academics um who are anti-israel at the moment talking on television talking about israel keeping a concentration camp And that kind of language, I think, is so emotional and and deliberately aimed at the recent memory of the Holocaust. And then they'll say when asked and pushed about it, oh, well, we mean concentration camp like the Boer Wars in South Africa. We mean it. And it's like, yeah, but you know what those words are going to do to people and what it's going to make people remember. And it's going to conjure up images of the Holocaust and this impression that the Jews are doing to others what was being done to them. And it's, it's totally different in scale. However, what people could maybe say about Gaza, just carrying on from your point is, well, they did pull out, but... They still control the airways. They still control the border there. There is another border with Egypt, so I don't know exactly. But is that was that a way of leaving, but making sure that Palestine couldn't have any economic prosperity and that it would continue to have this kind of extremist bubble?
0: Uh, the primary logic of the blockade of Gaza is to prevent weapons from flowing in. Israel mm. provides, and America provides tons of money and tons of humanitarian aid every single day, funneling resources and medicine and food and so forth into the Gaza Strip. So in order to somewhat make up for the fact of, of the blockade. Now, again, the obvious seeming solution from the outside is just, we'll get rid of the blockade and you know Hamas will be happy, right? And they will make their own pe- people prosper. They will act like uh, a first world nation that is concerned about its citizens and this gets to again what is your picture of hamas what is your picture of what they want if your picture of what they want is you know the the reason they're parading around mutilated women is because they want to show the world they want more free trade i think it's, it's asinine and it's naive the notion and again, it's it's a little bit strange because if your argument is really, okay, Israel pulled out ninety percent from the Gaza Strip, but maintained this blockade. And what they got in return was thousands upon thousands of rockets and Genghis Khan style raids. So your logic is then, well, what you have to do is is pull out that extra ten percent and you'll get peace, right? This logic doesn't make any sense, right? It's like if you're going in one direction and getting the opposite result, Why would you go further in that direction and expect the cause and effect to just reverse itself? It's not really logical. The other piece to add here is that Hamas is being funded and backed by Qatar and by Iran. Uh, They've been backed by Iran for decades now and it's unlikely that they would be able to pull off an attack like this without that assistance and so israel feels it has to blockade gaza or else it's simply allowing just just a full blown alliance between Iran and Hamas, where there is no limit to how much aid they'll be able to get. Right. Everything we know about Hamas says they are going to use every bit of resource they can get their hands on to wage war on Israel. They are a a very single minded organization and they control all the money that comes into Gaza. Right. There was a, a memo that leaked a few months ago that the Biden administration was providing some aid to Gaza knowing that it, there was a high likelihood that this would help Hamas, because whatever you provide them, you can provide them infrastructure to build buildings and they will use it to build terror tunnels. Right. So the, the logic of the blockade is that Israel doesn't want to let Hamas arm itself to the teeth with, with no without sort of jamming the system. And I think that, that if this proves anything, is that that's a logical standpoint from the view of its own national security.
1: I believe that what we're talking about is also uh, the two state solution. And again, for people who don't know, the one state solution would be just to merge everything into one country, uh, which wouldn't work for various reasons. I think a lot of, well, we can get onto that in a minute, actually, but two state solution being that, okay, you've got Israel and you've got these two other parts and and those are Palestine. But my understanding is that that was actually, despite, as you say, this being uh, potentially very dangerous for Israel, that was actually offered to Palestine at least twice. And they rejected it because they would only accept something that would give them the whole country and, and m- mean that Israel no longer exists.
0: Yeah. So the two-state solution has been floated several times, some formally, sometimes informally, every time it has been rejected by the Palestinians. So it was there, there was a Peel Commission was a kind of informal floating of the idea of a two-state in the late 1930s. The Israelis kind of like begrudgingly and half-heartedly accepted that and the Palestinians completely rejected it. In 1948, the United Nations formally split the, um, the land into two internationally recognized countries, Israel and Palestine. Israel accepted that. Palestinians rejected it and attacked Israel. And they had a civil war, which Israel won. And then all the surrounding Arab countries also attacked Israel. And Israel won that defensive war as well. And that's when the modern state of Israel was born in 1948. They, Israelis call this the War of, of of Independence. So that's the first time that Palestinians formally rejected uh, a partition, a globally recognized partition. The, next, the most significant uh, next time was in 2000 when uh, Bill Clinton and Dennis Ross managed to, over the course of years, get... Israel and uh, Palestinians represented by Arafat to the negotiating table, and were really on the eve of what seemed to be a deal right as Bill Clinton was about to leave the presidency. Uh, And this is something that they had been working towards for years and years uh, through negotiations over how to get back to the pre-1967 borders with land swaps so that they uh, didn't have to displace as many people as possible. But this was a situation where Palestinians would get East Jerusalem and you know most of the West Bank and they would have a state. Israel said yes, Palestinians walked away from the table. So there have been several times in the past where the Palestinians could have had uh, an internationally recognized state. And consistently, they have proven to be the more rejectionist side. I don't want to overstate this because there are rejectionist sides on on both, both among Israelis and Palestinians. But it's just, it's crystal clear that Israel has been more willing to accept the existence of a Palestinian state than Palestinians have been willing to accept the existence of an Israeli state.
1: You've previously stated you didn't initially know enough about Israel to comment on it. And then you since learned a lot. And I believe in it, you visited Israel on Gaza and did a lot of research. And you did a great episode on your channel with Dr. Benny Morris. What things surprised you maybe about being there, about learning about the conflict and everything?
0: That's a good question. Yeah, I think... um... I guess what has surprised me is just how how different political and ethical thinking is when you're in a in a situation of true conflict. I think that in America and Western Europe we are blessed to not live in situations where we are in deep and irreconcilable conflict with our neighbor, uh, with our neighbors, I should say, and. You know, just how much of our ways of thinking are enabled by the fact that we happen to be living in relatively peaceful situations. There is a a lot of our morality is is a luxury of security, uh, that we don't have to get our hands dirty doing terrible things because we're we're in situations that are secure and we don't have to. Israel is, is in a situation just totally unlike what we are used to as as outsiders. The truth is that 9/11 was the worst attack on US soil uh, in history, Pearl Harbor being a close second. And neither one of those was anywhere close, anywhere close to an existential threat to the United States, right? None of those threatened the existence of the of the United States, not even close. They were traumatic, of course, And we launched two wars in response to 9-11, one of which ultimately didn't even have to do much with 9-11. So we overreacted in many ways, kind of inevitably. And I think we can expect Israel to do the same. But the history of Israel is you can bracket it into these discrete wars, the 1948 war, the 1956 war, the 1967 war, 73 war, Lebanon war, etc. But from a big picture perspective, Israel has just always been fielding violence from its neighbors, right? There's in one, in some ways, just one big continuous effort to defend itself from its neighbors. And this creates inevitably a siege mindset where you, you are, you're a tiny country whose existence has been threatened many times, right? We, I think Israel has, pe- people kind of have it backwards, right? They see that Israel has this powerful military And it is now the bully of the situation, right? And in many ways, you could say that that's true. It it does have the more powerful military, absolutely. But how did it get that way? It got that way by being a country that literally had to invest 99% of its brain share in military survival, or else it would have been slaughtered down to the last man, woman, and child. Because it's surrounded on all sides by military groups that have been happy to advertise how much they would like to slaughter every last man, woman, and child. And unlike in America where that's just not even a remote possibility, we really are. I mean, there's no chance Mexico and Canada could team up to beat us or would want to. Israel actually could be destroyed, right? It was not that far from losing the war in 1973. And so Israel has successfully defended itself against an insane level of threat that is not comparable to anything the United States has ever even come close to facing, not even during World War II. And in a way, people hold that successful self-defense against it. They imagine that Israel would be more sympathetic if its power were less. To me, that doesn't make much sense. Because if Israel had much less power, there would be much more bloody wars. And there were far more bloody wars back when Israel was less powerful, say, in the 1970s. In the 1970s, Egypt and Syria, they saw that Israel wasn't necessarily a superpower and they they attacked and that was an extremely bloody war, which Israel almost lost. So in a way, the power imbalance is part of what keeps the area secure, relatively speaking. If you have a huge power imbalance with your enemy, they are less likely to attack you to begin with. So you avoid bloody conflicts before they start. Now, if you start slipping and they see an opportunity, that's when bloody protracted wars tend to become incentivized. So I think people have a wrong view of the power imbalance as well, and the role it plays in the stability of the region.
1: On the audio podcast, just so people know, this is going to be you know one long episode that we're both putting out on our podcasts and on the, on, on YouTube. We're doing two different videos. And do you think, or what do you think, actually, of what people are saying that oh, this is? partially been caused by a weak Biden uh, and wouldn't have happened under Trump.
0: Yeah, I'm very skeptical of that. I'm very skeptical of that. I, I think we have this tendency to want to blame ourselves for everything. In my view, I'm not sure that Hamas is looking to Joe Biden as a cue of like when they should act or, or really looking to the U.S. president necessarily. That said, Joe Biden has been in many ways soft on Iran, in many ways, uh, people have argued Obama was soft on Iran, and obviously Trump wasn't. Trump was a huge critic of the Iran nuclear deal. To what extent has that enabled Iran to help Hamas? I'm not sure. I'm not really sure. You know, Iran has been helping Hamas regardless. People are are, are saying that Joe Biden unfroze six billion dollars that that the Iranian regime now has access to. And money is fungible, so that may have enabled them to help Hamas more, which is possible and uh, perhaps worthy of criticism. I think saying it's worthy of criticism is one thing. Saying that that enabled this specific attack and this attack wouldn't have happened without it, I don't think there's any evidence for that. I think that one argument that's been made, which might be true, is that Hamas chose to attack now in coordination with Iran because Iran and Hamas both want to kill the emergent peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So there's been um, lots of talks since ever since Israel made peace with Bahrain, the UAE, uh, and Morocco uh, under Trump, the world has been waiting for Saudi Arabia to be next. Obviously, you know, Israel made peace with Egypt and Jordan uh, in the late 20th century. And Israel has, it's very important to Israel's foreign policy to make peace with as many Arab nations as possible. And there used to be the thought that first we have to make peace with the Palestinians before the Arab nations will accept us. And that's proven to be false. It's been shown that Israel can make peace with Arab nations without having resolved the issue vis-a-vis the Palestinians. And they want to pursue that aggressively. Um, Saudi Arabia has an incentive to be on good terms with Israel and America because that helps them become the leading power relative to their rival which is Iran. Saudi Arabia and Iran are the two biggest players among Arab nations and their rivals. So Iran Sunni and Shia. Yeah, exactly. And Iran has every incentive to kill the budding peace deal with Israel and and Saudi Arabia. So one way of doing that is to create a war between Hamas and Israel so gruesome that the pictures of dead Palestinian children will circulate in Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi Arabian government will not be able to make peace with Israel in that context because their populations will be siding with the Palestinians. So that is one, one theory about why now. And uh, I think we'll, we'll know more in the coming weeks about to what extent that is true. How
1: is it that parts of the progressive left were celebrating the pictures of dead Israelis, often LGBT communities, who we know if they were under the Hamas regime would be killed immediately. Also BLM, or at least BLM Chicago, I think it was, who came out you know, in support of, of these attacks. How is it that they are able to square these things?
0: Yeah, so I haven't seen anyone celebrating the pictures in uh, specifically. I have seen uh, there was a protest, I think, in New York, where it may have been the Democratic Socialists of America were you know, celebrating the fact of the attack, um, and the success of the attack, which, okay. So, you know, one explanation is like, have they seen what Hamas did or did they just see a headline saying Hamas successfully attacked Israel? Have they seen the picture, the gruesome pictures of what was done to women, right? To children. So, I want to give a part of me wants to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they they haven't seen how barbaric what happened is and that's the only reason that they could possibly have anything good to say? On the other hand, I think that uh, there was one video where, you know, they were explicitly explicitly acknowledging. There was one guy actually, and I think it was a New York protest where he was saying Hamas crossed the border and attacked and kidnapped a bunch of hipsters at this music festival, and they were celebrating this. So they knew it was that they took civilians. They knew that they attacked a defensive. Defenseless music festival and kidnap people, and still we're cheering. This is indefensible. I mean, it's indefensible. And the only reason those kinds of people care about this issue is because they look at it as a black and white apartheid issue, essentially, where the Palestinians are like American blacks and the Israelis are like American whites. And so, with that simplistic mindset, they say, well, I'm on the side of American black people against white supremacy. Why would I not be on the side of Palestinians against Israeli supremacy? And so I think they just graft their American mindset onto the issue and come up with a very inappropriate view of it, of, of the situation. That's the only reason that I can explain why, you know, someone on the, on the American left would care so much in the first place about the Israeli issue and then come out defending Hamas.
1: Go. Cool. A very difficult question for mm. you. That's going to force you, perhaps, maybe, to say awful things. Mm. Okay. If you are Netanyahu now, yeah. If you are Netanyahu, you are Israel. You've just been attacked like this.
0: What would you do? Well, yeah. This is where I think it's helpful to look at the nine eleven lens, right? After nine eleven, Americans were united in the attitude that we cannot negotiate with this; we must destroy it. That was a bipartisan consensus after nine eleven. So, you know, if I'm Bush after 9-11 or Netanyahu after 10-7, my responsibility is first and foremost to the security of my people, right? This is war and no country would accept an attack like this on its people without a brutal retaliation on the military force that carried this attack out. I mean, you have to punish this kind of an attack to such an extent that they don't contemplate doing it again. And this is when I made the point earlier about how many of our attitudes around sort of sympathy are a luxury of the secure. If you're not in a secure situation, I'm not sure you have the luxury of of being timid or being weak, being seen as weak, right? Because when you're really surrounded by hostile people that want to destroy you, strength is the only signal that they will understand. They won't understand humanitarian concerns or, or begging. They'll understand that they can't mess with you because you're stronger and because what will happen if they mess with you is intolerable to them. You have to impose an inco- a, a cost that is so intolerable to them that they don't contemplate doing it again, or at least not for a very long time. Now, that, that may seem a brutal thing to say, but what is the alternative? Really, what is the alternative? It's the alternative is being soft on your enemy and hoping that the mercy you show them will be reflected in kind. What evidence is there to expect that mercy will be reciprocated in this situation? What about Hamas' behavior that tells you, well, if we, if we take it easy on Hamas, maybe they'll thank us and take it easy on us? Right. This is the kind of thinking that you can only have if you are outside the situation, living in peace and security thousands of miles away. Right. If you've experienced what they're what they doing to you, you understand that there's only one language Hamas understands, and it's strength. And they have to be made to see, to see this and to suffer this. And that's the only way that they're not going to do this again. I think that
1: ex- existential threat... Well, firstly, it's a luxury belief, a little bit like certain people who, among the progressives who want to defund the police uh, when they live in areas that don't necessarily need intensive policing or extensive policing. Uh, it's, it's one of those kinds of things. The existential threat that you mentioned, I think, extends even further further than Israel and to Jewish people in general, and there's about, I'm one of them, there's 15 million of us in the world, which is an extraordinarily small number. Uh, you can compare that to Christians, there are 2.2 billion, and that's just believers, which gets us into more murky, complicated uh, grounds. You know, I'm not a believer of Judaism, I'm an atheist, but I, it shows up on my sort of heritage things when I've done that, and it says I'm 95% Ashkenazi Jew, so I've got this lineage, and that would mean that Hitler or uh, a terrorist organization would have a lot of interest in, in murdering me despite my beliefs or uh, lack thereof. So for me, I go about thinking, okay, things are fine. I'm very lucky to live in the UK where I'm very safe, but things do happen. Uh, my sister goes to a Jewish school. She's got security outside. Like you wouldn't believe like the amount of security that has to be there. They've just been warned not to wear anything that shows what school they go to, that kind of thing. And I'm always thinking that Israel serves as something of a deterrent to prevent any kind of Holocaust scenario from happening again to this very small number of 15 million people. I know a lot of people, when they hear things like that, start th- they're thinking, yeah, but they're all rich and got the money and this and that and that's another thing we can go into or maybe for another day it's extremely complicated but jewish people do on average tend to have more security blankets in that sense and it makes sense that they would or would try to do that whenever they can but that didn't help at all with the nazis you know they just stripped them of their money and business businesses and things so we're always aware i suppose like any minority that something like that could happen again and if israel were to fall The first thing I would be doing with my family is going like, what the hell are we going to do? I might immediately think, okay, should we go to America? Is New York now maybe the safest place? Because it's the most, I don't even know what I would think. But I don't think I'd necessarily stay in the UK. Uh, Certainly wouldn't think about a place like France, Italy, uh, Eastern Europe. No way in a million years would those be safe places to go. So there's more at stake. And I'm, I'm saying that, I suppose, to explain a lot of people. There's a double standard that Jewish people have and that I have. And for years, we'll get people coming up to us and saying things about Israel. And we'll consider that to be anti-Semitic. And I think, I think it is if they don't know us well and they're just saying, hey, you, what, if, you know, what about Israel? And we'll say, hey, I, I haven't even been to Israel. What have I got to do with it? It's just one country that happens to be uh, the Jewish state, the one Jewish state there is. And at the same time, it's so integral to our, our safety and our existence. And I think to negate that is a little bit cowardly. Uh, a lot of Jewish people do. And they say, oh, Israel, I don't. And it's like, but those would be the people that would come to your rescue if you ever needed it again. So it's a complicated, crazy existential threat.
0: How do you feel, uh, do you actually feel that there's a level of anti-Semitism in the circles you run in in the UK? And uh, if not, do you feel there is anti-Semitism in other corners of the country? I think there's anti everything isn't there mm-hmm. in,
1: in, you know and, and I, i'm always really careful when i talk about it because i there is a tendency towards uh victimhood olympics you know that that a lot of people go towards that is the currency of the day some form of victimhood and it's just ridiculous because i had uh i got you know the piss taken out of me a lot at school for being tall right just being this that's a bad thing as well <laughs> there were plenty of minorities as well uh uh but, by the way being tall is great i love being tall but i didn't when i was at school because everyone hates whatever they are at school and people can tell and they go for the thing that you don't like being and having acne and stuff like that, right? That was bad. That was that was really hurtful. I also get called things on YouTube, anti-Semitic things, because people see my name as Gold. Maybe I look a little bit Ashkenazi Jewish. I don't know. And people say things, particularly when I've gone on very right-wing. Podcast or or not very right wing, but center right. I went on Tim Paul and I was having a great time. And then I came home and I rewatched it with the live chat, and it's like every other word is Jew, Jew, and all this stuff, and that's the right. And it's easier for me, and I can only speak from my personal experience here, to discard that because I suppose I grew up just thinking of these people as just lunatics. That's just how I felt, and they're so they're so distant from me. But having gone to you know a nice high school and. Uh, college and these kinds of things. I was more likely to mix with people who were on the left and intellectually progressive. And that's a lot more painful when you get it from those people, at least in my experience, because everybody experiences it differently. So for me, an example would be a friend of mine, I'm just thinking of, who was just very, what we would call woke. I know no one likes to use the word woke anymore, but just for ease of communication, very woke, progressive. They were very, very careful around making any kinds of jokes about any kind of minority or identity, because identity is the thing at the moment that is sacred. But this guy would still say whenever we had lunch or whatever, he'd make a little little joke of like, are you going to pay for that? Are you going to be Jewish about it? Like that kind of thing. And you can't really win because if you pay too much and you give a big tip, it's like you're being a flashy Jew. And if you don't <laughs> give enough, you're being a stingy Jew. So I've grown up with like a mad complex about that. Like I will never let uh, a situation arise where I owe a friend money. Like even if it's like one pound or dollar, that cannot be the case. I cannot let that person think for a second. And if I do, I'm, I'm a mess. I can't sleep. I'm sending messages like, Hey man, I'm, I'm paying you, paying you back tomorrow. Just so you know, or as soon as I see you, have you got your digits so I can do the transfer like immediately because I'm so, and then I'm thinking, God, the way I'm obsessing again, it's a Jew obsessing about money. <laughs> and so, so yeah, that's the kind of thing uh, that goes on particularly in London and progressive intellectual circles.
0: Yes. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in in a very diverse situation, but also in a, a town with a heavy Jewish presence. So I had lots of Jewish friends, lots of black friends and Asian friends. And I remember, you know, like my Jewish friends taught me Jewish jokes and I made black jokes with my black friends and Asian jokes with my Asian friends. And it was all pretty much in good faith at the time. It's a
1: beautiful way to grow up.
0: Yeah, it is. I, 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 I don't, it's not really how most people grow up, but I think as I've gotten older, I realized what a blessing it was. I find it, you know, as I get older, it's, it's harder to form those kind of relationships with new people you meet, especially in the current climate, because you can't just like thoughtlessly make a joke necessarily. It really could hurt someone if you, if you didn't grow up with them. And if you're just meeting them for the first time. But I guess I would ask you, you know, do you have, uh, first of all, have you been to Israel and do you do you have any family there that was uh, affected by this recent event? Mm.
1: Yes, yes. I know. But I just I want to just also clarify about the friend of mine who was saying stuff about Jews. I would have found that funny. Uh, Maybe it gave me a bit of a complex, but I had a complex about being tall. You know, I had to see a physio recently to finally sort that out because I was I was bending down so much with my neck to fit in with everybody else, particularly growing up. I also had a very mixed. uh, I was very fortunate to have that kind of mixed upbringing with everybody. (laughs) But a lot of Jewish people around me, Jewish people tend to be short as well. And so do I think Asians. I don't know if that's actually across the board, but there were a lot at my school, like Indian. I'm talking about Indian and uh, Bangladeshi, Pakistani, uh, shorter. So I just didn't I wanted to be the same as everyone else. My neck hurts from that. So you get mm. a complex from everything. That's what jokes do to you sometimes. And I, 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 the reason I was upset when this friend did it was just because we couldn't joke about anything else to do with anyone's identity. Mm. And that was the one he considered okay, oh, interesting. which suggests to me that there's a hierarchy in his mind like so, aside from the jokes, this is a very real hierarchy in his mind where Jews are the rich, powerful people, right. and it's punching up. So I think that's why I was offended by that. I think we should be able to joke more. I, I think a lot about something John McWhorter told me ages ago, and I just, I just love this theory about swear words and how they've changed over the years and uh, like cuss words. I think, did you say swear words in America? Yeah, I don't know, rather one, yeah, profanity, yeah. So. um That it was initially the words you can't say, hell, uh, damn, things like that, which had a religious emphasis because religion was the sanctity of the day. And that gradually moved over to the bodily functions as we had this sort of repressed conservative society. So fuck, shit, ass, uh, the c word which the c word's an interesting one because if we weren't on a podcast, I would say it happily in America they don't say it so much, and that's because it crosses over with the third tier which we're in now, which is identity, and so that c word has misogynist mm-hmm. uh well it, yeah, it, people think it's misogynist, and in the u k we use it to describe men, so we don't have that same kind of thing so yeah, we've moved on now to identity, so the only words where you would say the something word you wouldn't actually say the word we've got like the n word mm-hmm. we've got the F word for gay people, right? You mm-hmm. wouldn't say that now. There's a K word for Jewish people. A lot of people don't even know, but you just, you just wouldn't say that word. And so it's, and, and the C word potentially. So it's really, really interesting how identity has just become that thing we cannot talk about, we cannot joke about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really interesting sad. And as I say, it was sad to me that this what this person who abided by those rules found it acceptable to do so about Jews and not about any other identity. It, it gave me an insight into what he really thought about Jews. As to your, your question about um, people in Israel, yeah, it's a weird one. So again, like I, I spent my whole life, a little bit ashamed when I was younger because it did feel like, you know, if you're Jewish, you're doing this horrible stuff to Palestinians, you're doing this. And that's so why I tried to distance myself. But I have uh, second cousins. So my mom's cousin moved out there. So they're there. They're in a lot of fear right now in Tel Aviv. I have my aunt and uncle were just there on holiday, uh, vacation, just last week they were just trying to get out. So they were stuck there. And it was very, very scary just thinking about it while you know, they weren't allowed to leave the house. There's there's air raid sirens and things going on outside, you know, which is scary, makes you think of world, world wars. And they had to wait and try to get to the airport. And the whole time you're thinking, well, you know what, the airport's a very dangerous place to be. You imagine, of course, Israel has this defense system and the Iron Dome, but it was it was breached. So loads of airlines were cancelled. And I understand that what pilot wants to fly into Israel at a time like this? And it took days and days and days. And luckily, just this morning, uh, my aunt and uncle were finally able to get out. And then there's my fiancé's family. She has loads of second cousins and things like that, Uh, maybe even first cousins who are out in Israel. She's been to stay with them. They're incredibly welcoming, lovely people. And they've lost uh, loved ones, friends of theirs. And so in my house this last week, and it's it's not often that geopolitics really comes into my home in any way. And the last week's been a really, really difficult time where I've been trying to lift my fiancé up And also starting to do live streams on YouTube about this situation, because it's important to me that the average person, not that they side with Israel or against Palestine or against Hamas well against Hamas they should anyway. But I want them to understand almost that Shakespearean thing of if you cut me Do I not bleed? I I have this feeling that I've had my whole life. It's it's probably a victimhood, stupid thing I have, but it's there that people think I'm a lizard person uh, because of some of the conspiracy theories and stuff like that. And they want to know, like, hey, we're hurting. We're real people as well. We don't get any joy out of Palestinian deaths when there is an attack on Palestinian people. When that has happened over the years, my family and I do not sit there celebrating. We sit there mourning for those people. And for the reaction that is going to come out in the press and how people are going to see us even more like these horrible uh, attackers. So it's, it's never a good feeling. And that's the weird relationship we have with Israel, a country which I did visit many times. I did one of those uh, uh, tours that you do when you're 16 and went around the country. And I you know, I was I was a rebellious child, so I didn't want to listen to anything they were saying. And I felt like they were trying to brainwash me and all this stuff. But it was a beautiful country with beautiful people. I find them a bit rude sometimes, mm-hmm. Israelis, but th- that's maybe the sort of Middle Eastern, different culture to, yeah. to British and maybe American. But yeah, that's that's my strange relationship with Israel.
0: Yeah, no, I, I kind of noticed the same thing when I was there that I called the concierge or the hotel for something. And there was just none of (laughs) that kind of politeness culture. It was just like, no way. Yeah. What do you want? And I was like, excuse me?
1: They, they've got no time for that. <laughs> yeah. it, just,
0: it doesn't even enter their mind. Yeah. And
1: especially being British, for me, I, although I find Americans actually even more so, you guys are really polite, especially in, in staff positions, maybe because of the tipping culture. But whenever I've been there, everything's like, hi, sir, how can I help you? And I'm like, oh, wow, look at these lovely people. Israel, yeah, they just push you out of the way. They don't hold the elevator door for you. They don't do that stuff. It's just not in their culture. But they're also very warm and lovely. I think this is probably true of many, I don't want to uh, stereotype or anything, but many sort of hot countries with these beautiful traditions and beautiful family members and things like that, but beautiful family traditions where they don't quite have the same priorities around what we think is
0: polite. Right. Okay. So one of the big sticking points with uh, Jewish people in the West is a question of whether or not Jews are white. Some. So one thing to realize here is just the vast majority of Jews in America are Ashkenazi Jews, which means that, these are Jews that have been living in places like Poland and Ukraine and, and Russia for hundreds of years before migrating to America. You know, sometime in the past hundred fifty years, and so often don't look distinguishable very much from Polish people or Russians or, or, or so forth. Uh, and then there are there are Jews that have been living in the Middle East for the past hundred years uh, in places. Until they were expelled and moved to Israel, most of them, places like Baghdad and Cairo had Jewish populations and they look Middle Eastern. And obviously there were Jews in Spain as well and Morocco. And so when you go to Israel, you see lots of Ashkenazi Jews who look, quote unquote, white. But you also see lots of Arab Jews who don't, who are not, you're not actually able as an outsider to distinguish them from Arab Muslims. At least I can't. So how do you relate to the question of, you know, whether Jews are white and and how do you sort of think about that? I
1: think the saddest part of it is this has become something that I increasingly have to think about. And growing up, I didn't think about it. And that's fortunate because, I mean, it's this word that is is a, used a lot, but you pass. As a Jewish person, you pass to an extent, right? I mean, people know gold is is a Jewish name, especially anti-Semites. They know. My dad's name was Goldstein. He changed it because of the kinds of anti-Semitism he was getting. So we changed it to gold. But a lot of other people did the same thing. And it's still quite clearly a Jewish name. As I say, my sister goes to a Jewish school. I didn't I didn't want that to happen. But a lot of the religious schools, when they're free schools, are just better in many ways. They have better uh, education and teachers and things in various religions, at least in the UK. So I never thought about this. And now, because of this obsession with identity and identity politics, we do have what I was referring to earlier with this kind of hierarchy. That's the only reason it would really matter in public discourse, I think. Is a Jew white? Am I? What, am I the same as another white? Well, I don't know. Maybe my family are from Poland and Russia and Ukraine. Some other white person, their family is from Scandinavia and maybe from England, and well, maybe I'm the same as them in in that respect. Then it opens up this whole issue about what is Jewish and what it means to be Jewish. And every time I talk about anything like this, I get so many comments from people who are well-meaning and they're just, or well, some are well-meaning and some are not, but well-meaning, just saying, "Hang on, you're an atheist Jew. That doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. It's a paradox." And I try to explain that to me, at least, there are several. Different aspects to being Jewish. You might it would be more helpful if they were different words Mm. because they just are totally different things that are somehow intrinsically linked but separate. One of them is Judaism, the religion that is a belief system. I have little interest in it, although I did grow up uh, reading Hebrew. I didn't know what it meant, but I could read it. I had a bar mitzvah. Um, I have a lot of Jewish family and friends who are involved in some ways in the religious aspects. Then there's the culture, which intertwines with it. There are a lot of people who don't believe in God, for example, or anything like that, but they like to get together for Passover uh, and have some of the Jewish traditional meals like any, you know, like uh, maybe some Greeks would do. A minority of Greek people in the UK or people of Greek lineage would get together maybe and, and, and enjoy some of the stories and these kinds of things. And then there's just, I don't know if you call it ethnicity or lineage or race, nobody seems to be exactly sure. And it's a really sticky point. I know that again from doing the my heritage stuff that I've got ninety five percent Ashkenazi Jew. I think five percent was Iberian, so that would be Spanish or Portuguese. And I don't know anything about that. I know very little about my history because most Jews, when they their families moved over, mine moved over to the UK in something like nineteen oh one. Their names were changed. Their documents were thrown away. They wanted to assimilate. So I have no idea. Like I, I know that they're from certain places like Ukraine. So am I white? I feel like I'm I'm white, but I also feel like I have to worry about certain things that most white people particularly in the UK. It's such a small percentage of people are Jewish, you know, most white people don't have to worry about. And and then I, I would never want to tr- even compare that to what a black person goes through, what an Asian person goes through, because they're all different and it depends on so many different factors. So th- I guess the long answer to that is, or the short answer to that is I, I don't actually, I don't know, but because of identity politics, I'm feeling increasingly not white, which I think is in a sense a shame.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's one dynamic where in a way... If you're a Jew, if you're Ashkenazi Jew, you would uh, you you might want to in the oppression Olympics be seen more as Jewish as opposed to white, because, you know, if you're on, say, a college campus in America, the worst thing that you can be is a white person. That means you are the oppressor. Uh, You have actually the lowest status in the local status hierarchy. That certainly is how it was when I was at Columbia. And if you're black like me, like visibly so then you're automatically higher than a white person. But if you're Jewish, you're in this weird in-between because you look white, yet you don't you can't be put in the historically white category. Right? The reason that white is low status is because, you know, Europeans were the colonizers. And if you're Jewish, you know, you have all of these sort of cards to play In terms of the oppression Olympics, right, you can play the Holocaust card, which is, you know, in this weird kind of social status hierarchy is a really strong card to play. But then other people may swat you down and say, well, look, you look white, you have white privilege. So actually, you're low status, right? This is intersectionality, the culture of intersectionality. And it's whenever I talk about it, there are certain people that it just it sounds alien because it's not the culture where you live. But I guarantee you, if you go to an Ivy League school or an elite college in America or e- uh, an elite high school, intersectionality is how social status is sort of doled out. So I'm curious, if do, do you feel that at all? Do you feel like there are any situations where you being seen as a Jew would heighten your status as opposed to being seen as white?
1: I tried it. I tried to use it. Uh, and And it was that kind of, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, so I started my career, I was making video documentaries where I was going around to different cultures and places because I'm fascinated with, with different cultures. I went to learn languages. So I speak five languages and I was living in Argentina, Brazil, Germany, different places. And I made these videos about exorcist, an, an exorcist who's a, who's a lunatic and looking for UFOs, stuff like that. And I managed to get one sold to the BBC. You don't. It doesn't usually work like that. Usually the BBC have to commission it and they give you the money and you go and make it with them or with a production company who works with the BBC, but they just weren't interested in me. I tried a million times and look, why should they be? You know, not, not everybody has a right to just be a BBC TV presenter, so fair enough. So I went and made it myself with my friend David, this exorcism documentary. It was like an hour long TV documentary and it took two years and I sold it to the BBC. I pushed them every day on LinkedIn, finding all the people at the BBC, whatever got it eventually sold to them it won festival awards it was in their best of 2018 list it was like doing really well so I thought like okay finally after all these years of pushing and pushing and doing it myself and trying to do everything I'm going to be able to do this and be this tv guy I used to love this guy called Louis Theroux or Thoreau in American he's the son of Paul Thoreau, the travel writer the cousin of Justin Theroux, who who's an actor who married Jennifer Aniston uh, and he does these kind of documentaries and he's a big English tv presenter and documentary maker is what I wanted to be so I then went to Various meetings with the BBC, and then the BBC would s- sort of suggest production companies that I talk with, and I had an agent, so she put me in with these production companies, and I came in with my ideas, and these were these mad ideas about a an indigenous tribe in Bolivia where they put people in ant hills, they have to put their feet in ant hills and get bitten if they commit adultery, just stuff like that. I thought this is going to be an interesting documentary, anthropolo- anthropological kind of thing, and I would see people just nodding and nodding, like wow, because most of the ideas they were getting were just stuff in England happening, mm. and they going, what, you've got access to this? And I was like, yeah, I've got the people. I've got their phone numbers. I've spoken with them. I've got the, for the whole series, there's going to be 10 episodes of different kinds of weird stuff. And they were going, wow, this is great. This is great. And every production meeting I had with all different producers around the UK, probably 50 to hundred of these people, every single time there came a point where they said, listen, we do have to talk about something that's a little bit difficult here. And I would say, okay, well, you know, what's that? That's what I said at first. Now, eventually I knew what they were going to say. And my friend David was in these meetings with me. So he was witness to this. And they would say, unfortunately, we do want your ideas, but you're going to have to be off camera. You can't be like on the camera talking to people because we need somebody who is from a minority background to be on the camera, to be shown, to be visible. This is not going to go to the BBC and certainly not to Channel 4 Uh, which is the other big channel here and and even more progressive. It won't, you know, it just won't with you as a white man on the screen. So that was really, at first I was still young and I didn't understand all this. And this was at the, the dawn of the very new kind of identity politics that we have. So really I felt quite a a bit of a a hero, you know, because I've got an ego like everyone else. And I felt like, hey, I'm doing a good thing here. Maybe we'll get some minorities to be the presenters of my journalism and I can hide behind it and pretend it wasn't me. Or I felt good about myself. I I don't even know how or why, but I did. And then as it went on, I thought like, I need to pay my bills. (laughs) Like, I've got no money and I don't know how I'm going to live. And okay, I can get a job somewhere. Of course I can. But this was what I wanted to do. And I knew I was good enough to do it because they were telling me I was, but I had to be off screen. So I started to really resent it mm. and I became really, really resentful. It's part of why I started the podcast. Initially, my podcast was a bit more anti-woke. Mm. And then I sort of moved away from that into more cults and human behavior and different kinds of things. But it, w- it was all the James Lindsay's and the, mm. uh, these kinds of people were, were on. And it, because I was so angry about it all. And I did try and say a few times, When they said that, I said, well, you know, like I'm Jewish. That's a, that that is a minority. I felt so ashamed Mm. to say it because I felt like I was trying to get a job because of my lineage, because my great grandfather was in a bad situation. Like what the fuck has that got to do with me today? And I felt like shit saying it, but a guy just, I remember really, really vividly, it stuck with me. One guy, he just sort of laughed and he said like, well, if I said what I really think about that, I don't think he'd be very happy. Mm. And that was it. So in that sense... Jew did not help. Mm-hmm. At the same time as all of this, I am aware there are a lot of Jewish people in, particularly in America, in show business, in the media. There are a lot of white people, white men in the media, in these kinds of things. So I do get aspects of all of this. There are not many Jewish people on British TV. It's, it's very different being a, a British Jew to an American Jew. But that was it. That, that was the moment when, when I got laughed out of there. That was the moment I was like, right, well, fuck this. I don't. I just don't need this like mainstream TV that's enthralled to some sort of weird
0: anti-racist campaign. Yeah. So what what do you think the difference is between being an American Jew and a British Jew?
1: American Jews, I think American Jews probably don't realize how fortunate they are in many respects. Or maybe they do. I think they do realize it from people I've spoken to. Firstly, because they're far more numerous, I think, than in the UK. Even if the percentage is relatively low, the percentages in some of the places like Los Angeles and New York uh, is a little bit higher. I mean, in London, in the UK, it's still like 1%, I think. It's a really small amount uh, of people, a small number of people. Secondly, Judaism has been able to infiltrate the culture in a way that it hasn't in the UK. In the UK, there is this kind of, uh, I don't mean to suggest the UK is more racist because I don't actually think it is. I just think that it has this kind of old guard. Mm. And if you want to get into it, you know, we'd call it wasp or yeah, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Is that what it yeah. is? Wasp? Yeah. So very waspish, very Gatsby. I know that's an American reference, of course but um, old school, old money, that kind of thing. So the way that Seinfeld was able to permeate the culture in America is just there's been no equivalent in the UK like that I don't feel like that could happen there've been a few attempts by various comedians but it, it couldn't there couldn't be a language like the way bits of Yiddish have, have gotten into American speak mm-hmm. or speech you know there's no like you know a lot of not non-jewish people in America use those words Seinfeld Larry David, Mel Brooks Woody Allen. It's just all of these Jewish people who have managed to completely uh, Sarah Silverman, Ben Stiller, Adam Sandler. Mm-hmm. It just the, the list is like never ending in, in a sense because it's something that was just big for them and important for them, and it was a big part of their culture. In the UK, there's a little bit more of a you know keep your head down, don't let people know that you're any different that you have horns or anything people might think, you know, when I went to university up in Leeds in the north of England, um, and this is not, I'm not having to go at Leeds by, by any means. It's just, there, there are people everywhere who are maybe ignorant or whatever, but I did get a lot of people saying then, you know, have you got, oh, I thought you would have horns and, uh, oh, why aren't you coming out with us tonight? You're going to be studying the Torah and stuff like that. That would be saying to me. So it, yeah, it's just a little bit more alien here and a little bit more, keep your head down. Plus, the UK is slightly more to the left, I think, than America, uh, generally in politics. I think, you know, the Labour Party here's a little bit left of Democrats. The Conservative Party is a little bit left of Republican. Uh, and it means that I think there's even more social clout for that kind of oppression Olympics, uh, of which the Jews are, are generally not considered very high up. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It might have something to do with just the general fact that America is more of an immigrant-friendly place, yeah. and we haven't defined ourselves ethnically in a very long time. Um, and you know, a place like New York has been just you know, if not a melting pot, then a salad bowl of all kinds of different people. And so, in some way, it would make sense that that Jews, like any other immigrant group, just seeped into the culture more. I mean, I think Italians have seeped into the culture so much in America. Irish people have have seeped so much into the culture in America and contributed so much. And groups have been more willing to sort of take and give and in this way, in American culture, most European countries just haven't had that. They've been defined by their ethnicity.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting about Italian Americans because I am think I immediately have an image in my head. I've seen The Sopranos, mm-hmm. I've seen The Godfather. I know that those ha- those are part of derogatory stereotypes. I know that that's not how most Italian Americans are, of course, but I know what an Italian American is. Mm-hmm. I don't know what an Italian Brit is. Mm. I don't know what an Italian English... That's just an Italian. That's just some guy who's Italian. And if some guy who's Italian comes here and has kids, they're just English kids. And they say, hey, you know, my dad's Italian. I go, I don't care. And it's just, I don't know why that is exactly. It just seems to be the way it is. And in in some respects, it might be a good thing. I mean, you're just who you are. You're you. But when there are... If there are a bunch of people who hate Italians, if there are a bunch of people who hate Jews, I think you're less protected in the UK because of that for some
0: reason. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.